0: The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Welcome everybody to the politics, politics, politics podcast coming to you live from an undisclosed location in Oakland, California in my self-selected quarantine bubble. I'm your host, Justin Robert Young. It is June 24th. I can't believe we're already knocking on Independence Day here. This year, man, 2020, what a kick in the groin. We are going to talk about qualified immunity. We got a great guest to talk about the legal ramifications of what qualified immunity is, how it could be uh, repealed, if it would be effective if it were repealed, and why it is something that may not have the effect that you would think on law enforcement. That's coming up. I also have some more meta thoughts about what the Tulsa rally means and why I, the more I think of it, I'm very puzzled on Donald Trump's strategy on testing specifically. But we begin with this. Chuck. It's 9 a.m. on Wednesday morning on the West Coast, where I am recording this, and Cocaine Mitch doesn't know who he's running against. The Democratic Party for the Right to Run against Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell pit establishment blessed Amy McGrath against progressive upstart Charlie Booker. As of recording this, 62% of the results are in, and McGrath has a 7%. Advantage, but yet to be counted, are thousands of mail-in ballots that could tip this race either way. And while there's more to discuss about this race, including the reduced number, namely one of the polling places or rather place in Louisville, And uncooperative poll workers closing the doors on voters, I wanna draw your attention to something that has happened more and more this election season, both before and after COVID. And that, of course, is the waiting. Iowa caucus was, of course, a total cluster, and Nevada couldn't get same-day results together either. South Carolina was a blowout, and COVID muddled Michigan and Florida. But in our general election in November, we are going to have a tremendous expansion of mail-in ballots in a lot of states that have never handled this volume of them. Now, I've been a pessimist on the, quote, we aren't going to have a winner on election night theory. But I'm here to tell you, dear listeners, that the wait is over. And I am here to tell you that we're not going to have a presidential winner on election night. I'm not here to argue about the failability of, Of mail in voting. I'm just saying that if you are for it, you have to understand the trade off is going to be an elongated days, possibly weeks, between when we vote and when we know. You want to peek into the future? Take a look into the past. I think that the Bushes are intentionally trying to rig this election.
1: It's a lot of whining and complaining about the outcome of an election that didn't go their way.
0: Low-speed highway drama. Echoes of OJ and the White Bronco. A rider truck trundles from South Florida to Tallahassee, stuffed with nearly a half Ah, yes. The 2000 election recount. When all of the little imperfections and flaws of a state-run voting system that then has county-run voting practices, that then has sometimes district-different ballots, it all becomes on display. It all becomes the fulcrum of how the balance of power in this country will tilt for the next for years. As many of you know, I grew up in South Florida. I was in high school when all of this happened in my backyard. My science teacher counted ballots on the weekends. To be honest, it formed my love of political insanity. But I want to let you know it is not for the faint of heart. Nor does it leave a particularly clean victory as... I'm sure anybody that has a Bush stole the election MySpace status probably could attest to. As soon as things break down into a battle of process and injunctions are filed, there is only one place for legal escalation. And as it happened in 2000, we could see it again 20 years later, ending in the Supreme Court. And considering some of the decisions that have been made in that court recently, I don't think either party feels particularly sure about how a decision would end up in November. Now, maybe I am overblowing this. Maybe it's enough of a blowout in the States that this really doesn't matter. Maybe the mail-in ballot bullet is dodged in 2020 and we have a better, more streamlined system with four years of experience in 2024. Maybe. But be honest. Everything going better than expected doesn't seem particularly on-brand For 2020. Does it? So as I mentioned, I am here in my undisclosed quarantine location. I got a COVID test on, on Monday. I may or may not get another rapid test on Friday to see whether or not I escaped Tulsa without the dreaded vid. But it's given me a little bit more time to even more so than my Twitter addict thumb is able to update and my political nerd sensibilities is able to hoover up coverage and opinions. I've thought a lot about what that Tulsa rally meant. And to think about what that Tulsa rally meant, you have to understand what the Trump team wanted from it. They wanted to reset the race by way of Trump's power pitch. This is what got him to the dance. This is the can't fail, you can't touch this strategy. A powerful display of television populism. That's what he does. No matter what, you can argue with what he says on the stage. You can argue with who's in the crowd. You can demonize the people that support him. But what you can't argue with is the numbers. And in that respect, they failed. Like I said on Monday, I thought the speech was above average. And the reason for the lower turnout can be debated. But let's be honest. If you throw a party for 20 and six show up, you're going to have a few untouched pizzas and some melted ice on the floor with coolers still stuffed with beer. It did not reset the race. It added another layer of doubt to Trump's chances. Now, all right, I, I promise I'm not going to turn this criticism of Trump into another criticism of Biden. So Biden heads... Please rest easy. I will only ask for a very brief few sentences to get my Biden pessimism out of the way. I still hate the a Biden strategy. I still think there is more that he could be doing. However, as Biden's real clear politics average has now tipped into double digits at 10.1, it is hard to say that he's in a bad position. And maybe more accurately, it's hard to say that Trump is in anywhere close to a good one. Here's why. Even by White House framing, the economy is not going to recover by November. Denying the president his greatest weapon. What's more, protests continue to royal the nation's consciousness. Beyond the call for racial justice, they are now moving into more controversial pursuits. Ones that people even more want to disagree with. Things like annexing parts of downtown into autonomous zones and ripping down statues. Even conservative talking heads have begun to mock Trump's law and order tweets as futile gestures. And all of that may or may not come and go. We might be going into the polling booths in November and saying, wait, what was Chaz?" What will loom large, and I think increasingly is something that we are not going to see the other side of fully by November, is COVID-19, the plague of our time. And it is here that I genuinely believe on a strategic level, Trump's counterpunch of the moment instincts are uniquely unsuited. To create a comforting meta strategy amongst our consistent terror. For example, when the disease first hit, the demands, based on what we saw in Italy and suspected in China, were for testing and hospital equipment. Well, equipment was manufactured and distributed and testing is now up to the 500,000 per day that Harvard said was the, would be the benchmark to have a good sense of where the virus is. Now, as I speak to you, infection rates are up in some areas of the country, specifically the South and the West. Hospitalizations are up as well, troublingly so in places like Texas. Is this a more accurate look at the virus? Or is it a sign that we are collapsing into another crisis point? If I were advising a president in crisis, I would be trying to isolate problems and comfort with solutions. And specifically in this case, comforting with the solutions that we have already followed from ask to completions. We have surpluses of ventilators if needed. We have an Army Corps of Engineers to build excess hospital space. At the very least, you can draw a circle around escalating areas uh, so the focus on of, of the country's attention is local to places with hotspots, and not a persistent national anxiety. Reward areas that have done well and highlight areas that are in trouble now because everybody can already agree this is a pandemic. The best part of it for Trump, if I were advising him, is that he can still do his favorite thing, excoriate the media, flay them for citing raw case numbers to create panic, highlight regions of the country where they are decreasing, highlight the advancement of our treatment of COVID, bash other countries for putting their head in the sand on testing and pretending the disease is eradicated. If you add up the tests publicly completed by the United Kingdom, Spain, Italy, Germany, France, and Portugal, they've done roughly 25 million tests. Russia's done 17 million. India's done 2 million. We've done 30. Our testing throughput is increasing by the day, and our lead is widening. Again, for the population of India, we have done as many tests, or will do in many tests in the next Four days, possibly three and a half, than India has done full stop. Use this as a strength. It's another machine you can take credit for. Our case numbers aren't high, they are accurate. Accurate in a way that nobody else wants to look in the mirror and know the truth about. Yes, we're finding asymptomatic carriers. Yes, we're finding younger carriers with little risk of death. This is data. Good data. Data that's valuable in science, business, and government. It's the rest of the world that wants to pretend this is over with. We are learning how to conquer it with eyes wide Open. But of course, that's not the message that comes from the White House. Trump is again an in the moment counterpuncher, and he views the headlines about rising cases as an attack that needs an immediate rebuttal. If he could think two steps ahead on this, I genuinely believe. He could win on this issue. As we watch this play out, quite simply, I think that the world would need to revert to more of the norm and the economy would have to show tremendous recovery for Trump's current playbook to be as effective as it used to be. But let's be honest Getting back to normal doesn't seem very on brand for twenty twenty. Does it? All right, I would like to thank. Everybody, you guys have kept coming. You guys have continued, continued to support this show. And (laughs) trust me, guys, normally, uh, 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 you know, and and we're going to be laying out some more travel stuff that we'll be doing before the end of the year. Uh, uh, but let me just tell you this. It's expensive. It often eats up pretty much everything that I bring in on this show when I'm out on the road. And more specifically, when I'm out on the road for week on week on week on week on week, like I was for the primaries, like I likely will be as we come up to, uh, you know, the, the closer to the general and the debates, stuff like that. And it's even more so when... I, I can't come back and save money. <laughs> you know, I'm in this hotel and, and, you know, I might have to pay for this rapid COVID test. I, I'm not here to cry poverty, all right? I, I, you guys have, have supported me and I greatly appreciate it. I just want to let you know where that money is going and I want to let you know it's greatly appreciated. So, two things that I would like to specifically call out of course, takepoliticsseriously.com. that's where you can support this show. If you get in on the $3 level, you get two bonus episodes. Normally, it's Monday and Thursday. Today, or sorry, this week, because we did the Monday episode, it is going to be uh, Tuesday and Thursday. $10 level, you get your name shouted out here at the very end of the program. We've had a bunch of new Titanic $10 tier members that have come in over the last 48 hours. But let me also highlight this. Even if you don't have the $1 to get in on the $1 tier, the big tent tier on TakePoliticsSeriously.com, if you enjoyed the Tulsa episodes, and I've gotten great feedback on them, thank you to everybody who's written nice things about it and, and, and shared it, but go share it with one person. One person who cares about politics or maybe was burnt out about politics because I do think that it's, it's something that I've become increasingly proud of even in the, in the couple days since I've gotten away from it and people have kind of written me about it. The biggest thing that I'm proud about is that it showed an element of that scene that I believe is more representative of what it actually was. I literally watched media networks, television, media networks from around the world including many here, that were finding the craziest people that were there at that rally. And there's some crazies. It's a political rally. They tend to attract the crazies. They put them on so they could be combative, they could yell, they could scream, and everybody watching those networks could feel their own bias even in that moment being solidified and confirmed. What I wanted to do Was put, what I think again was the vast majority of people that were there, that I'm sure many of you agreed with, agreed with vehemently. There were still some bombast there, as our man who was riding on the uh, uh, limousine, you know, it certainly like wasn't like he was uh, shy of his opinions. But at least they were three dimensional characters; they were not cartoons. There, so you could either cheer or boo. So what I would ask you, if you enjoyed that episode, go on Twitter, go on Facebook, go uh, uh, on email. You know, you can even, you could even uh, 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 CC me or BCC me, the young American at gmail.com and just send that episode to a friend. These are the, the, the tent pole episodes of this program, and I believe is, it is an important part of what the PX3 brand is becoming in 2020. And that is a non-narrative-driven, non-advocacy look at what the front lines of this particular political contest really is. You don't have to agree with it. You will be better for it. So there we go. Tag a friend. Put it on Facebook. Put it on Twitter. Thank you. Thank you for supporting, both in terms of uh, uh, sharing and and in terms of uh, financial stuff. You guys have no idea how much it means to me. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our guest today is Joanna Schwartz. She's a professor of law at the UCLA School of Law. You can follow her on Twitter at J.C. Schwartz Prof. We're going to talk all about qualified immunity, police reform, and the issues of the day. Welcome to the show, Joanna.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So when... The the protest first started and the George Floyd murder was uh, uh, obviously on the, the front of everybody's mind. I did an episode on this show where, to be totally honest, I was uh, a little nervous because I, I this is not my specialty, but it is obviously the issue of the day. And I tried to look through the most bipartisan but effective reform options on the table. And one of them that I came to was qualified immunity. And that's something that I, it seemed on the political spectrum from the conservative think tanks to the the the, the Jacobin, uh, uh, qualified immunity had been in the crosshairs as something that needed to be reformed or eliminated. Uh, but let me ask you, just so I can get a sense, because as I've done more research into it, it seems like even the understanding of qualified immunity as it is used in the real world... Seems to uh, vary by who you speak to. So let me let me ask for you for, from you the definition. What is qualified immunity?
1: Sure, qualified immunity is a defense that was created by the Supreme Court in 1967 um, that shields government officials, including police officers, from damages liability even if they have violated the Constitution so long as they have not violated what is referred to as clearly established rights. And the definition of clearly established rights has shifted over time. But today, based on Supreme Court precedent, what it means is that a plaintiff will be denied relief, even if their constitutional rights have been violated. If there is not a Supreme Court case or a case from the Court of Appeals, that has held unconstitutional, virtually identical facts to the facts at issue in the case.
0: Okay, so uh, if if we're to draw a like real world example of that, uh, it, it would be something along the lines of you are detained unjustly, but unless there is Supreme Court case law that says that that specifically has been held up, then even if you... You know, by the letter of, of your constitutional rights, that was violated, you cannot sue that officer personally?
1: That's right. So to give you a, a real-world example, there's a case um, that the Supreme Court just recently said it would not hear, um, a case where a um, person who was a, um, a suspect in a uh, burglary um, was sitting down with his hands up and police released a dog on him while he was not resisting, not posing any threat. Um, the, there was another case from that same court that had held it was unconstitutional to release a police dog on a person who was lying down because that person was not resisting or posing a threat. But the Sixth Circuit said that case with a person lying down was not sufficiently similar to the case at issue where the person was sitting down with their hands up. And so that prior case didn't clearly establish the law. The Supreme Court has repeatedly instructed lower courts that it's not enough to simply draw on an established constitutional principle like you can't use force against a non-resistant, non-threatening person. You actually have to find a prior case in which similar force was used against a person who was showing in similar ways that they were not resisting or a threat.
0: So the force has to be the same and the situation has to be the same for, for it to meet that definition. Okay. Correct. Now, this is for suing the officer personally, Right.
1: Well, I want to be clear about this. It is for cases against individual officers as opposed to cases brought against the city. And one main claim made by defenders of qualified immunity is that without the doctrine, officers would be held personally liable for split second decisions that they make um, and, and reasonable errors good faith errors made during those split seconds. And so officers would be subjected to the threat of bankruptcy and no one would ever agree to uh, join the force.
0: So that, that, that is, that is something that I have heard from, from officer listeners to this very show. They have, they've made that argument. Uh, uh, when I, when I went after qualified immunity.
1: Great. So there's two really important things for people to understand that, uh, demonstrate that that those concerns um, really are overstated the first is the near universality of officer indemnification so what that means is state statutes around the country require local governments to pay for the defense of lawsuits meaning paying for the lawyers when officers are sued and pay for any settlements or judgments against those officers if they're found liable. And um, and so when I looked at police misconduct settlements and judgments across the country, I looked at 81 different jurisdictions over a six-year period. I found that officers paid 0.02% of the dollars paid to plaintiffs in those cases. There were over 9,200 cases that I found where plaintiffs recovered money. Officers contributed to between 37 and 39 of those cases. And the amounts that they contributed was an average of about $2,000. So officers are not personally satisfying settlements and judgments in these cases. And that would continue to be true. Those agreements would continue to exist in a world without qualified immunity. The other point that is critically important to understand is that officers are not going to be found liable for good faith errors made under split second circumstances. Because the United States Constitution, as interpreted by the Supreme Court already says that good faith errors are not constitutional violations. The Fourth Amendment, as interpreted by the court in the excessive force case context, for example, makes clear that officers are required to make split-second decisions that the constitutionality of their conduct is evaluated based on the totality of the circumstances that courts are not supposed to use 2020 hindsight in assessing whether the officer's conduct was reasonable. Reasonable conduct, including reasonable mistakes is already protected, or excuse me, is already um, exempted from liability under the Fourth Amendment. So officers are not going to be found liable for reasonable mistakes under the so, Fourth Amendment. And if they are found yeah. liable, they're not going to be personally responsible.
0: So so let me go back to your first point, because I think that, that this yep. is an interesting uh, a way to think about it. Your, your point, your your counterpoint to the argument that cops will be bankrupted is that No matter what, even in a world without qualified immunity, the state is still footing the bill, and effectively, this would just make the state more aware of the specific cops that are costing them money that are now state liabilities uh, and not coming out of the cop's pocket. Like, this this would just be more of an uh, an out-in-the-open version of this cop cost this city, this county, this state money by way of these liability judgments?
1: Yeah, the money currently comes uh, virtually always from the cities and it would continue to come from the cities. Um, What it would mean is that officers um, and cities weren't protected from liability in cases where officers violated the Constitution.
0: All right. So so let's let's go with the idea that we think qualified immunity indeed is a flawed judgment. Uh, this has had a couple challenges to the Supreme Court. They again refused to hear a case just last week. Uh, we have seen the the House of Representatives put a bill together that included the end of qualified immunity from your perspective. Is a legal or legislative solution to this more likely or effective?
1: I think that either the court or Congress could act. Um, I'm not. I I, I am. I am so my mind is so blown by all of the action that's been taken and all of the steps forward that have been taken on qualified immunity over the past three weeks, as someone who's been studying qualified immunity doctrine <laughs> in, in obscurity for the past yeah. ten years, the idea it is, that it people is. are holding up signs saying "end qualified immunity" and and congressmen and senators are and ha- and house members are, are are introducing bills, it just it boggles my mind. I always assumed that it was going to be the Supreme Court or nothing. Yeah. Now I think there's a chance for it to be Congress, but I also you know take to heart that. Um, some Senate Republicans are are describing qualified immunity reform as a non starter.
0: So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, but 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 from from your perspective, on action, any action, be it legislative or a legal precedent, would be a, a step in the right direction. There's not one where you're like, well, no matter what, this could be overturned or this could be less likely to hold up. They they would both be no, steps I think- forward.
1: Yes, I think if Congress acted, the court would not overturn it. And I think if the court acted, um, Congress could could step in. But I but I doubt that they would. And of course, you know, once we saw what Congress ultimately did or what the court ultimately did, I could I could offer commentary about whether it was the right thing to do. But either is sort of as an institution capable of correcting this wrong.
0: Why hasn't the Supreme Court ruled on this? Because it seems like based on my research, they have come close multiple times. What is the reasoning and from which side of the bench is holding it back?
1: It's a great question. Uh, Over the past couple of years, as you mentioned, there has been increasing attention to qualified immunity among commentators and advocacy groups. And part of what's remarkable about the current moment or the moment leading up to the current moment is it is that the opposition to qualified immunity crosses all ideological and political bounds um, trump appointee judges have criticized qualified immunity um, the aclu criticizes qualified immunity um, some law enforcement groups criticize qualified immunity cato institute and the institute for justice criticize qualified immunity So it is a doctrine that um, people on all sides of the political divide seem to agree on. And the same is true on the Supreme Court. Justice Thomas and Justice Sotomayor have been the most vocal critics of qualified immunity among the justices currently on the bench. And so...
0: And, and, and by the way, for for folks heroics who are not Supreme Court watchers, those are literally <laughs> the opposite poles of the ideological spectrum. Like that is that is the 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 spectrum connecting at the end. That's apparently what they agree on.
1: It's true. And I think that if you read um, if you read their opinions, they seem to be focused on different things. Justice Sotomayor, who would um, fall to the to the left. Um, is concerned that these qualified immunity decisions sanction what she's called a shoot first and think later approach to policing. Uh, Justice Thomas has described whos on the on the right politically has described an um, entirely different critique of qualified immunity doctrine. His concern is that Um, the doctrine which was originally created to serve as a good faith defense in um, false arrest cases where officers had probable cause has now ballooned into this defense that protects all officers, even if they've acted in bad faith, if there's not a prior opinion uh, with virtually identical facts. And in his view, that shift... um, is is too much engagement by the court, too much expression of their policy preferences. And we should return to a version of the doctrine that is more similar to what was in existence in the late 1800s when this right to sue was first enacted by Congress. So they have very different kinds of critiques, but um, across the ideological spectrum, the concerns about qualified immunity uh, include include all of those uh, critiques that it harms government accountability, that the current doctrine is not based on um, what the the sort of common law or legal understanding was at the time the right to sue um, came into force, and the view that the doctrine doesn't actually. Uh, achieve its intended policy goals. It's not necessary to shield officers from financial liability because they're already indemnified. The Fourth Amendment already protects against um, liability for reasonable mistakes. Uh, And the doctrine actually increases the complexity um, and, and, uh, and time and risk associated with this Litigation, So it doesn't actually even do a good job of shielding officers from liability and in insubstantial cases.
0: So then who's on the side of this thing? <laughs> and if, if we <laughs> see this, this bizarre tag team ideologically that is arguing for different reasons on, on different spectrums why it's uh, uh, flawed, who's supporting it or who's refusing to hear it?
1: the 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 def- the defenses of qualified immunity that I have heard really sound in concerns that officers will be held personally uh, financially responsible um, in these cases that um, they will be held responsible for reasonable mistakes and that those um, threats will discourage people from ever agreeing to become law enforcement officers or will cause them to be overly cautious while they're on the streets and doing their jobs. And the the notion, the argument that a change in the law will hurt public safety, will hurt policing is a very powerful message. And I think that's part of the reason that the doctrine has um, been allowed to exist for so long. But this view that you have to have vigorous policing Um, That that's important to us as a society and that eliminating qualified immunity will do away with that safety. But if you actually look at the evidence, if you look at the way that officers are virtually always indemnified, the protections of the Fourth Amendment um, and other um, evidence that's now on the table, I really don't see an evidence based defense of qualified immunity being made. It's the defense is much more rhetorical, much more about these, um, these threats that sound very compelling, but do not have the weight of evidence behind them.
0: Is there a half step here? Is there an element of qualified immunity reform or, or, or boxing in exactly what it would mean legally Uh, uh, has, has that been a strategy that has been tried or, or is this really just because this is so narrow, a decision that has been around for so long, you really just need to go at the heart of this.
1: There are certainly half steps um, or partial steps that can be um, made. Um, As I read it, um, uh there's a bill that was introduced yesterday from a Republican senator from Indiana that would eliminate qualified immunity unless there was a prior decision that had held conduct un, uh, excuse me, that had held conduct constitutional so there was a sort of an affirmative statement that a certain act was constitutional
0: so the, this would this would be this would questioned. be like the opposite the opposite day version of it is is that instead of everything being you know you can't sue because there's not an exact case law it would be the reverse where it would have to there would have to be case law well to yeah, sue, or a case yeah, that, okay. affirmatively yeah, that affirmatively put them on notice that
1: they thought they were doing what they were doing was right.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. So now it's the onus of the um, cop that say, like, okay, well, I know for sure we can do this.
1: Exactly. That that's my understanding of the proposal. There's other, sort of even more um, uh, limited suggestions that have been made. Um, there's a law professor from the University of Virginia um, named John Jeffries who has suggested that qualified immunity should really turn on whether conduct was clearly unconstitutional, um, which would take the focus away from this hunt for a prior case on point uh, and instead point to focus on whether um, it should have been obvious that the behavior was unconstitutional. To my mind, I think that we could do away with qualified immunity altogether. And because of the protections that are already built into the constitution for officers, uh, that there really isn't another another layer of protection needed. As I said before, the fourth amendment protects against good faith mistakes. So a good faith mistake would be a mistake made based on a prior court decision suggesting that something was constitutional. So I don't actually think you need to bake that exception into uh, an adjustment to qualified immunity. If you get rid of qualified immunity, that protection for good faith mistakes is still going to be available just because of the way in which the Supreme court has defined the fourth amendment.
0: So the one thing that I can't really get around is in talking and reading more about qualified immunity, although I tend to personally agree with you that I think that this is and certainly in this conversation you have made a very persuasive case that this is the the arguments against qualified immunity may not have the teeth that that those that uh, speak them would would allow you to believe. But is it really an effective mode of police reform? if all these qualifiers still exist, if the money <laughs> isn't coming out of any any of the cops' pockets. I mean, I guess from the argument of a cop would be more likely to go to court more often and would be personally named in a lawsuit more often, it certainly would make things more public. It certainly would make things a little messier. It would make things harder to hide for cops that are continually brought up on... Uh, these kinds of uh, of, of violations or or people believing that they were denied constitutional rights. But do you think it would have an effective, uh, uh, appreciable effect on police reform?
1: I think it would. And I think it's one of the most important first steps that the Supreme Court or Congress could take to improve police accountability. Remember that there's almost 18,000 law enforcement agencies across the country. And so thinking about individual reforms to policies, other measures that uh, have been suggested and put into place, these are things that are going to take a lot of time. And there's going to be a lot of sort of startup challenges to make sure that departments are actually following these um, adjustments to police reform. A change in qualified immunity applies um, across the board to the court's uh, across the country, but I also take your point um, that even if we eliminate qualified immunity, there's going to be other challenges and barriers to accountability. That is why eliminating qualified immunity is not a silver bullet. we don't We're not able to just end and stop there. Um, but it is an important step, and there's a couple of really tangible things that ending qualified immunity would do. Um, first, I think from my interviews and conversations with lawyers um, who bring civil rights cases, eliminating qualified immunity would reduce the risk that lawyers take on by bringing these cases. And I know that plaintiff lawyers often get a bad um, rap, uh, but they uh, agree to take these cases on contingency, meaning they will be paid nothing if their client... Um, loses and yeah. recover just a percentage if they win what that means in in this world where we are right now, qualified immunity takes a lot of time to learn and, because it's so complicated and quickly changing. It's a challenging argument to defend against uh, defendants who who bring a qualified immunity motion and are denied can immediately appeal their case that that motion, which leads can expand the the time that it takes to bring these cases by a year or more. And lawyers who are bringing these cases have to be prepared both to bring a case to trial and also to argue to a court of appeals uh, where most lawyers just do trial work or appellate work. This, is, this doctrine makes bringing these cases much more complicated and risky because they can invest all of that time into the case and then have the case dismissed. For that reason, lawyers that I've spoken to say, A lot of lawyers just decide they're not going to bring civil rights cases at all. It's not worth the risk. And others bring a couple of cases, lose tens of thousands of dollars because they lose on qualified immunity, and then decide never to bring these cases again. There's still going to be many other reasons that lawyers are very picky about which cases they accept because they could risk spending lots of time and money on a case and then lose and recover nothing. But ending qualified immunity is likely to reduce some of those barriers to entry, which is going to mean that more people whose rights have been violated are able to find lawyers to bring claims. I agree with you that more cases will also go to trial. And I've found that defendants usually win in cases that go to trial, Um, we've seen around the country that, that police officers, and I think it's true even today are among the most respected, uh, uh, professions in our country. And lawyers I've spoken to say that juries are often pretty skeptical of their clients and, and more likely to believe the defendants, but it's going to mean greater transparency, greater public attention to what's going on. And, and a final point right now, cases where people's rights have been violated, can be um, uh, dismissed because there's not this prior case on point. And courts can grant qualified immunity without ruling on whether the Constitution has been violated. And what that means is that there's various areas of the law that are never explored and explained. Courts aren't ruling on the constitutional questions. And that leads to more uncertainty for Police departments and police, who are trying to train uh, and guide their officers about the limits of the Constitution, eliminating qualified immunity would mean there would be more clarity about the scope of the Constitution, which would actually benefit uh, benefit police departments that are trying to train their officers. And there's a crisis in policing right now that we see with this, with all of the protests. And, and all of the efforts of reform. There is um, a great deal of distrust um, and lack of faith in law enforcement um, from communities, particularly um, communities that are, uh, that are being over-policed. And qualified immunity sends a message uh, to these communities that um, police can violate their rights with impunity. I actually think eliminating qualified immunity would uh, end opinions that send that message and might actually help to restore some trust in policing. And that's why I think you have signs by protesters saying end qualified immunity, end this obscure doctrine that has a couple of funny words tied together um, because of the message that these Pieces send to police and to people who are policed.
0: So, just so I get your your point, uh, uh, you know, uh, summarized here: A, it's effective because unlike the piecemeal nature of local, state, federal law enforcement, this would automatically cut across to everybody. And B, if we're talking about accountability, which I do think is a very, very, very big part of uh, a reform that I think is reasonable that a lot of people would agree with. Uh, I think even cops, that there is a dormant wing of reform that is kept silent by qualified immunity in the legal system that would almost immediately be put back online, should it be repealed. I think that's right. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, well, 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 thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to explain that to us. Uh, my guest has been Joanna Schwartz, a professor of law at the UCLA school of law. Please go ahead and follow her on Twitter at JC Schwartz prof. Joanna. Thanks one more time for coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you spending the time on this, uh, very important, uh, subject.
0: And that will be it for this week. I just want to say this. We are now in the final 50. The final 50 patrons before we hit that rare air of 1,000 patrons at takepoliticsseriously.com. So I know there's a few dozen of you hiding out there. If we can shake you loose from the tree, then we will be at four figures on Patreon. Again. There's some mega Patreons that have thousands and thousands, but getting up to a thousand is, is a really, really, really big deal. And uh, I want to thank everybody that's already there and everybody that's thinking about the decision. Of course you can uh, uh, be a part of our Titanic, $10 tier. Like so many of you have uh, joined, even this, just uh, uh, this week, we have government unfiltered spawn, Jerry gamer goo, Andres, Neil, Archie, I Poop My Pants, Logan, Darren, DTNS, J Milius, John, The Gen, Emily, Adam, Zachy Chan, Olin and Angela, DL, Brian, Steven, Chad, insert scoop name, Nomadic Terran, Miranda, Robert, Herschel, Thor, Wolfglen99, MacBook Pro, Dustin, Brad, Richard, D. Laser, Nick Wood, Peter, Mike, Jim, Lindsay, Kurt, Random, Frozen, ya boy, Craig, and Andrew. TakePoliticsSeriously.com if you want to be there. Uh, a reminder that you can email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. We're not going to do an episode Friday because we did an episode Monday, but next week we are going to do a mailbag. So, with everything that's gone on, any question you might have about Tulsa, any question you might have about going forward or where you think I should go, we're going to do a big mailbag section next week, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. That is where you send your emails. If you want to follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young, a reminder that the call to action this week is to send that Tulsa episode. If you liked it, if you thought it was worthwhile, send it to a friend on social media. Tag me at Justin R. Young. Send it to a friend on Facebook. Email it to a friend and uh, use the youngamerican at gmail.com if you want to BCC me just to let me know that it's happening. Till next time. This is your old boy, Justin Robert Young, saying uh, some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics. Still more, man. They're out here talking about politics. But this is the only show that talks about home.